Hello, and welcome to episode 67 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. Carl is also the host of the 30 Love Tennis Podcast, which has an extensive catalog now of 30-minute or less conversations with various people from around the tennis world. So if you're not already familiar with that podcast, you should be sure to check that out as well. We are now one week away from Wimbledon. In fact, the qualifying rounds are already underway with several several wins already in the books, players advancing to the second round of the men's qualies. And tons of tennis from the last week to talk about four tournaments, including Queen's Club and Halle and Birmingham and Majorca. Also have some doubles to talk about with Andy Murray's big comeback. But I want to start with something that is, I'm not even going to tell you what it is. Not even going to tell Carl what it is because I, I want to get his un, unbiased, un, um, uh, unbiased works, feelings on, on something. So... Uh, what I want to start with is something about serve direction. And my question is this, that do, do you think that for, for your typical player, there is an optimal serve direction? So there's, there's one serve that if they decide that's the one they're going to hit, stepping up to the line, it, it would maximize their chances of winning the point? Like specific to that point. Right. Yes, but and, and and let let's let's put a, a a really wide tent around all the data we could be we could be basing basing it on like how the player generally performs with different serves, different deuce add variations, how the returner handles them, how the returner has been returning that day, how the server has been serving that day, like any information you can imagine drawing on. Like if we if we put all that into the mix, is there one optimal serve? Yeah, probably. It's it's. I'm not sure that there's there's going to be a big margin of error about for anyone trying to estimate what it is. But I think it exists. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think that's. uh, I I agree with you there. It's we might only be improving your chances of winning from you know 66 percent to 71 percent, or maybe even less than that. But but yeah. So do you think that? So, so there, there is an optimal optimal choice, even if the, the margin is small. Do you think that coaches are in a better position than the players themselves to know what that serve is? Good coaches, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, Bad I mean, coaches I, are just T T T T. You know, there's an argument that like any player's best coach is him or herself, but you know they're busy doing other things, playing tennis, so. Th- you know, they do need someone else and, you know, some of them are probably really strong on other things and maybe not on tactics point to point. But yeah, coaches have a lot of built in advantages uh, in terms of, you know, having access to information about how the match has gone so far. That's not just like your best mental estimate as the player and, you know, not having all the, the other physical and mental stresses that accrue to the person on the court. Uh, so, yeah, I think a good coach should on average, have better suggestions. You know, one thing they don't have access to is, like, how the player feels in that moment and what, what feels like the serve they're going to hit best. And I, I don't know how accurate that player's feeling is, but um, I'm guessing since so many players are guided by that kind of feeling that it's pretty good. Yeah, you would hope so, especially given how many serves, both in competition and in practice, that the average pro has hit by the time that 
we're paying attention to them. I mean, we've got to be talking in the tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. So they should have a pretty good read on that, but maybe they don't have as good of a read on how the returner is reacting, um, exactly what's happened recently. There might be, there might be some recency bias in it. Just thinking like, I got a, I got an ace down the T on my last juice court point. Therefore I'm going to go to go there again. Maybe the coach could think those scenarios out a little better. So I agree with you there that on average, I would think a good coach gives you some edge over what the player picks with, I mean, some of those reservations noted. Now, taking that one step further, do you think that an algorithm that took into account and maybe analyzed video footage of, of how the returner is handling things, looked at like the, the history of uh, all serve points or return points by these two players, maybe recent serve points during the match, um, so if you have a really good algorithm that sets out to optimize these things to pick the best serve direction for the serving player, do you think that's better than the coach even? I don't know if it's better than the coach, but I think a coach with that tool should be a lot better than that same coach without that tool. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I might even go so far as to say it would be better than the coach. I mean, I, I, I guess there you you need to be careful with the language because I was tempted to say like a sufficiently advanced program, but like if it's sufficiently advanced, then what makes it sufficient? It's, it's sufficient to outperform the coach. It's not a very, not a very specific way of framing the question. Um, so there, there's, I think what, what we agree on is that there's, there's some benefits to be gleaned by, by handing over at least some of these decisions that can be made between points to to a coach or even to a coach with a computer in his hand or her hand. Uh, and I didn't think about this until in, until just now that we're talking about it, but you see that in doubles. Like Doubles teams consult each other to, to decide on where the next serve should go and how they should handle the next point. Uh, and presumably most, if not all, doubles teams agree that that's a better decision-making method than just having one player do it. Although I guess we don't know that with doubles teams because they could just be... The, they could be putting the decision in one player's hand and they're just communicating it to the other one so the other player can be prepared. I'm not sure. But the reason I bring this up is at the end of last week's episode, we were talking about coaching rules at the U.S. Open. And last year in New York, during qualifying, they were testing a new rule where there was basically free coaching. Um, free coaching in the sense that it wasn't limited, not in the sense that it didn't cost anything. Uh, so... The idea was we're not going to force the umpire to monitor the coaches. Uh, we're not going to limit coaches to one on-court session per set. Like coaches can do whatever they want. Players can go to the go to the rail and talk to the coach um, between service games whenever they want. Just take taking those rules out of the equation. And for a, for a few days last week, it looked like they were going to implement those rules for the main draw as well in 2019. And part of the reason I wanted to start with this is to correct the record, since I know many of you are getting all of your tennis news from the Tennis Abstract podcast. Uh, that's not going to happen this year. Shortly after we recorded, it came out that that's not happening in 2019. I'm not sure whether the, the press just jumped the gun or one reporter jumped the gun. But uh, regardless, maybe the USTA heard what we had to say about it. They they took a step back. So maybe it'll come in, in another year or two, maybe not. But one thing I think we we disagreed on last week was how much of a benefit it could have. And this seems to me to be an example where if you do open the floodgates to unlimited coaching, 
then you also un- open the floodgates to whatever the coach can have in their hand, which which would um, uh, add up to a lot of computing power. Uh, and and that could, more than just the, the once per set uh, on-court coaching that WTA has, more than just coaches yelling things at their players to be more aggressive or whatever, this seems like something that could really change the face of the game. I mean, it, it, it would be... It, it would be a much bigger change than anything we've seen so far vis-a-vis on-court coaching. Would, would you agree with that, Carl? Yeah. Would you like to say more since I <laughs> need to catch my breath here? Well, the, the more you have to catch your breath, the more you've already said some of the things I wanted to say, which is great. I mean, uh, save, save me some breath. Yes, yeah, my I... podcast, darn it. <laughs> Please continue. I'll stop. It's Tennis Abstracts podcast, which is yours. I I generally agree. It, I mean, the way you framed it was like, this is more than we've seen before. And I mean, that's absolutely true. Um, I, I do think we have some information, may, maybe from some work that, that I did for ESPN. And uh, I forget, you, you may have done, I think a few people have looked at like, what is the marginal benefit of choosing serve direction well? Um, so, so we could sort of get it abound on how much gain a player could get. Uh, and then there's the question of just, hey, if there's unlimited coaching, there are going to be a lot more players who designate someone they're not paying as their coach. And that could be their doubles partner, could be a buddy on tour, could be their significant other who's watched a hell of a lot of their matches. And especially if there's a tool and maybe the the free version has a lot of you know in-app ads, but it still gives you basically the same advice. Um, you know, maybe if there's a tool, there's, um, there's, it doesn't really matter that much who's who's sitting there and giving you the information. God, maybe you know, the tennis world will will realize they can just cut out the middle person. They'll show on screen like this is the best serve for this player, um, and then it'll be a real like mental game because both players will know. But yeah, I, I don't I don't see that happening. Um, I, I do think it'll be interesting to to also see how different players deal with this. Some of them may just not want this at all may not want any interference on like point to point decisions, whether it's from their coach or from an algorithm. And, you know, some of them may take the advice, but find that they perform worse when they're taken out of their usual uh, process for, you know, deciding what serve to hit and then setting up to hit it. Yeah, that's a good point. And we could see some different strategies being employed. If it, assuming these changes do come, I mean, it, it seems like like the smart money is probably on more coaching rather than less in the future of tennis. And there is going to be an intermediate phase where you'll have veterans who, yeah, like you say, they're used to not having interference. The interference might help, might hurt them more than it helps them against young players who at least eventually there will be young players who've just learned to play tennis this way. Like as, as soon as they were old enough to play competitive matches and have a coach in their corner, even if it was just a parent, um, they were accustomed to having this, this this constant feedback, even if it's just something basic like we're talking about choosing serve direction. Like, there aren't very many very many pitchers who get to the pros without a lot of experience, at least getting pitch choices suggested to them by catchers. It's just it's part of playing the position. It's it would be part of playing tennis, and I wonder if that's one way in which the sport can improve, just in general. I mean, it, we saw. 
a couple decades ago, there was this major change in tennis with as as the makeup of rackets changed. So we can't say that players now are better than the Bjorn Borgs and Rod Lavers of the world, but we can say that their level of tennis is higher because they were used to playing with higher quality equipment or, or equipment that translates into hitting the ball harder and faster and with more spin. And equipment changes tend to do that. They have these nonlinear effects on, on how the game develops. And this could be something else. I mean, maybe we will see a younger generation who's used to more involved coaching uh, be able to optimize that and, and overcome an older generation that either resists the coaching entirely or can't really take that much advantage of it. A few thoughts here. Uh, one is that we're likely to see in, this, in similar algorithms other tips for players like not just where should you serve it but should you serve in volley here which i you know mostly will the answer will be no but maybe if it's an optimal play because it it hasn't come up in a while this is the right direction to do it this is good score to do it whatever um that players end up doing it more because they're reminded like this is an option and this is this seems statistically like a good time another thought is it's going to be fascinating to see what happens when a player follows the advice of coach or algorithm or coach plus algorithm a few times and they all fail. Um, do they understand that, you know, these things work over a large sample or do they angrily reject the advice as much worse than what they would have done and, and not listen to it anymore, at least for that match? Uh, and, and then lastly, you know, I was joking about putting up on screen so both players could see what the the optimal choice was for that point. But more realistically, the returner is going to have a coach too. (laughs) The coach is going to have the same tool. The returner should know what is the optimal choice for her opponent and be prepared for it, which starts to create a real mind game of like, should, should I do this thing if my opponent knows this is the most likely thing I'll do? Is this still the best thing to do in a world where the opponent is expecting it a little more than usual? Well, I wonder if at that point the the best algorithm is just to take the algorithm we're talking about as a given. So let's say you and the returner both know that that your your chances of, of winning improve by 2% or something if you go down the T instead of going out wide. Um, but factoring that in, I wonder if the best, the best decision-making paradigm on top of that is just a random number generator. Because I, I think we've all been in that situation where it doesn't even have to be in tennis. It's in every sport, like... We know what we should do. The opponent knows what we should do. The opponent knows that we know what we should do. And, you know, I can I can keep going with various levels of what I know that you know that I know that you know that I know. Um, so rather than doing that, just say, you know what, I'm going to flip a coin. I mean, <laughs> I don't have a coin in my pocket because I'm busy playing a tennis match, but my coach has a random number generator on his phone and boom, there you go. So, so yeah, all, all of these all of these algorithms could come down to just small tweaks to a random number generator. So should they use like the free random number generator app or an AI developed by IBM that's a random number generator app? I think they should use the, um, the video representations of commemorative coins that they use at some tournaments now. Have you seen those for the coin toss where they don't actually use a coin? They, they have one on, on the big screen. <laughs> wow, that's um, that's really something we needed to digitize. Yeah, is, is it I is bet. it a crypto coin? 
I, I don't know. I don't know if there's any value or if it's pegged to an existing currency or a basket of existing currencies and securities. I, I don't know. I don't know whether, whether Facebook Libra is involved with this in any way. I'm sure it will be soon. Maybe the San Jose tournament in, uh, in, in, in July. Maybe Facebook Libra will be the official crypto coin of the tournament and thus it'll be the first tournament where you flip a crypto coin. Um, I have used a random number generating app to decide which, what to do at each corner on a city walk. And, you know, maybe not the Wimbledon title was at stake. There was a lot less at stake. It was just going for a walk, but, uh, it would work really well. I mean, you just say, I want a number from zero to two or one to three and, and it gives you a number and then you do that. So, um, yeah, that could definitely tell you which way to go. You'd want it to be a weighted number generator so that there's more chance of T and Y than body, for instance. But it, it's it's funny to think that like the more sophisticated the tools get, as long as both players have them, you could end up with something very simple and free. Yeah, and I guess that's something that we always end up coming back to is that we can talk about optimizing these things and there is probably some room for, for improvement, maybe more for some players than for others. But... Ultimately, I guess analysts, we have to start from the assumption that players basically know what they're doing. So whatever the current distribution of serve direction is, it's probably about close to optimal. Most of the time they're serving in the right direction. Maybe Caroline Wozniacki is not serving unpredictably enough, but in general, yeah, they're pretty close to where they should be. And maybe the more we know, then then the return, because the returner knows that too, we just end up back where we started. But Maybe it's a multi-million dollar consulting contract for Infosys and then everybody's happy. So lots of actual tennis to talk about in addition to our theorizing. So let's let's get on to that. Um, last week we moved our traditional last five minutes doubles ghetto into the middle of the show. And I want to move this almost to the top of this week because this is some pretty exciting stuff. Andy Murray, who announced his retirement in January during the Australian Open, had uh, hip replacement surgery. We expected that he'd be able to come back because it's the same surgery that Bob Bryan had, and Bob Bryan has come back and, and played well. So only a few months, really. It's, what, five months since the Australian Open? Came back playing double at Queen's Club, uh, partnering Feliciano Lopez, and they knocked out the top seeds in the first round won three more matches, and now Andy Murray and Feliciano Lopez are Queen's Club doubles champions, which is, I mean, pretty amazing stuff. Carl, I think we speculated last week that, I mean, they had a shot at winning it. Maybe we always said was that they had a shot at beating Cabal and Farah, which they ended up doing with the help of some well-timed net cords. But we, I know we, we both spent some time watching Murray back on court. How does he look to you? Do you is this is this the Murray of old, or is this a not quite Murray of old, but possible future double specialist Andy Murray? <laughs> if he wants to be, yeah, definitely could be a future double specialist. As far as whether he's the Murray of old, so much of what made the Murray of young, old, whatever, <laughs> what what he was was his his speed and. Um, you know, his ability to hit great shots from difficult on seemingly impossible balls and then still in difficult positions once he, he got to them. And that's a little harder to say in doubles. There's just so much less court to cover. That's such a smaller part of the game, you know, chasing down balls at the baseline. 
here we got to see his his serve, his returns, his hands. Um, you know, a few times his his ability to to run up to balls that were short. Uh, you know, maybe chase down some smashes, uh, move move on the grass, change direction on the grass when when balls were hit behind him quickly, and you know, great record on all those counts. Like he wouldn't have won the tournament without them, but really hard to say from just watching the doubles where he stands as a singles player now. I think a little easier to say that he probably doesn't stand all that well just from his decision not to play any singles during the grass season because as great as he's been on hard and as great as he became on clay, he's overall been best on grass and won two Wimbledon titles. And so I think he really would have wanted to to get in some grass matches before waiting another 11 months for the grass season. So that must tell us something about his prep, but it does sound like he's planning to try to play some singles before the end of the year. And based on what we saw this week, uh, he'd be bringing at least a lot of tools, if not his maybe number one tool to the, um, to those matches. Yeah. I, I wonder if uh, I didn't get the impression that not playing grass was so much a, vote of no confidence in in his body or or I need to put that a different way because it definitely was it, it it isn't that he he didn't think he'd be that good at singles it was more that he was unsure like he in the interviews he gave throughout the week at Queens it was more just he seemed a little surprised that he was able to play as well as he did and that he was pain free so I'm not sure he expected to be at that point and if you don't expect to be pain free and you're coming back from a long injury layoff then it would have been it would have been a big ask for him to go try to play competitive singles. I guess he could have just just played Queens Club or just played Eastbourne and and waited till the last minute to decide on Wimbledon. But it felt like it was more more just bad timing that like it, he wasn't he he wasn't going to take a chance on the singles court within five months of surgery. It just happened to mean that he lost the grass season, uh, but at least he was able to come back and and play on his preferred surface with some doubles. By the way, I think you said, did you say that they beat the Bryan brothers? I didn't mean to. They didn't. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Maybe you didn't say it. Yeah, because he almost had a matchup with his uh, hip surgery buddy in the final, but uh, the Bryans lost in the semi. So it may, maybe later in his tour of the grass courts on the double circuit with different partners, we'll, we'll get to see that matchup. Yeah, let's hope so. And so we now know he's playing this week in Eastbourne with Marcelo Mello, and he's playing with Pierre Eugène Herbert at Wimbledon. I think we talked about that a little last week. That news was already out last week. Uh, it sounds like Nicholas Mahou isn't thrilled about that, but he's not talking about it anymore. I'm not sure if Mahou has a doubles partner set for Wimbledon. It would be a shame if he didn't have a competitive doubles partner, but I'm guessing he could find one. Um, did you see any of the social media excitement about Andy Murray choosing a mixed doubles partner for Wimbledon? Well, I saw that he said he had a lot of trouble getting anyone to say yes, uh, including Ashley Barty, although I think she said no early on in a kind of self-deprecating way before she'd won the French Open. Um, They asked him again about it after the final, and he said that he was going to... I think he said he was going to focus right now on Eastbourne and and then try again. I mean, he's... He's going to find someone. If no one else, then he'll find a really good singles player who wasn't planning to play mixed. Um, and he'll, he should end up with someone a lot better than he would have if he had you know, crashed out in the first round of Queens. 
Yes. Um, yeah, I, I wonder about the Barty thing because I know she. it seemed like she's a, a very humble person and, and this is not meant as a criticism of her at all, but I don't buy the self-deprecating business of, of her saying he could get someone better because she's a Grand Slam doubles winner more than once, right? Yeah, I mean, maybe she was being facetious, although maybe she also meant Andy Murray could get whoever the hell he wants, so if there is someone better, he could probably get them. That's true. And and among the people who have already offered to partner him at Wimbledon, uh, we, we have Billie Jean King, for which would be a pretty special partnership, but but also Barbara Stritzova, and she's is she might be the number one doubles player in the world right now. I'm not sure. I know Close, she, if not. Yeah. yeah. She and Shea Su Wei have been winning everything this year. So, so yeah, she's very close to the top. That would be a, a great team. If I were Andy Murray, I would have seen that tweet from Streetsova and, like, done. <laughs> Decision made. That's my mixed doubles partner. Yeah, although this is Andy Murray playing in England. It's quite possible if a British woman wants to play with I think Kanta joked about it, but, I mean... That, that would just drive everyone mad, even if it would end up only being for one match. Well, wasn't wasn't Heather Watson his partner for the Olympic medal? Uh, Laura Robson. That was Laura Robson. Okay. It must have been a diff- another Olympics where she, he played with Heather Watson. Yeah, he's definitely played with Watson at, at Wimbledon at some point, I think. Or, yeah, he's played somewhere with Watson. Okay. So I guess he can't really team up with Laura Robson at this point. Um, that would have been... That's why I thought Heather Watson was the obvious choice because of the medal, but if... She was not the co-medal winner. That's not as applicable. Um, so some fun stuff to watch there. Uh, hopefully it'll, as we always say, whenever doubles is actually in the headlines, hopefully that reminds people that doubles is really fun to watch. They should watch more of it. Tournament organizers should put more of it on show courts. They should televise more of it, etc., etc., etc. I certainly well, enjoy being reminded to watch some doubles this week. Yeah, I always enjoy it, period, but... This week for me was the reminder that the most exciting doubles matches feature single stars uh, for the for the general audience. Unfortunately, like think of Davis Cup, uh, Fed Cup for that matter. Think of um, Laver Cup. Like the doubles matches that people talk about and remember tend to feature someone of of Andy Murray's fame. The Williams sisters playing. Yeah. That is, that is definitely true, and I, I guess that's, that would be one fun thing about having Andy Murray as a double specialist for a while, is we kind of have the best of both worlds. Someone who was really serious about playing doubles every week, but who has the star power of a singles player. Are, are there other recent examples you can think of of someone making a comeback and um, starting out by playing only doubles for you know more than one tournament? Not offhand, no. I, I love it. It makes a lot of sense to me, but I don't know if, if others, other than doubles players, of course, have uh, have done it. Yeah. Yeah, it would make sense. I mean, if only just to, to let players test their bodies a little bit. I mean, it, it might make more sense than playing challengers. Uh, yeah, I mean, a challenger singles match can be at least as, as hard on the body. Yeah, like Tommy Robredo won a final this week in, in Parma, and it took three hours and 15 minutes to win it. So, I mean, he wasn't coming back from injury, so it's not apropos of what we're talking about. But, um, but yeah, it's, nothing about challengers means that it's, it's easier than... It, it's just against a, a, usually a weaker opponent. I guess the only, only things I can really think about are, 
are players who come back and maybe will play more doubles on their return. So they'll get more match play right when they're coming back from injury. But it's not instead of singles, it's in addition to singles. Right, it's like I don't expect to win many singles matches now, so I want to get at least two matches from this tournament instead of just one. Exactly, yeah. Uh, one more thing I wanted to mention vaguely along the same lines as Andy Murray is we got one star back this week in Andy Murray, but we lost another one again in Juan Martin Del Potro. He played Queens, won his first round match against Denis Shapovalov, and already had another knee surgery. So he had to pull out of the tournament with a knee injury, had surgery. At this point, it's not even clear whether he'll attempt another comeback. But all of the Murray news really puts it in perspective what Delpo has gone through over the years. Murray has this triumphant comeback after one surgery and five months away from tour. And I mean, I, I don't even know how many months Delpo has taken away from the tour over the years, but it's many multiples of five months and he's come back and been competitive time and time again. So hopefully he'll have one more in him. Uh, I'm, I would certainly understand if he decided to, to call it a career and, and not go through all this yet another time. I'd love to see Del Potro, Brian Baker in doubles at a slam soon. That would be fun. I guess we haven't heard much from Brian Baker lately. He's probably, he's, he's probably full-time coaching now. Yeah, you know, it's you, you mentioned like seeing Murray have this triumphant comeback and, and meanwhile Del Potro struggles. We don't know for sure what Murray's comeback is gonna look like, especially in singles. And he has he did have an earlier absence in his career from injury and, and even, you know, this one followed a really long struggle, uh, for maybe a year and a half. But I feel like the the Federer comeback in quotes from injury must must have been the hardest for the chronically injured to take. Just in that Federer was never injured, then he was gone for five months or something, and then he won the next Grand Slam. So so that's got to be, and you know, and he's still playing at a very high level, one of the best in the world. Uh, two months shy of his thirty eighth birthday, so that's got to be the one that that the injured players really shake their heads at. Yeah, absolutely. Del Potro has had it a lot harder than that. Um including never really returning to his top form. And we can argue about whether Federer came back to his true top form or not. He probably didn't, but that might be more down to age than uh, the, the difficulty of coming back from his one injury. But that's a good segue. We're now 30 minutes in. We haven't talked about any singles results from this week or the Wimbledon forecasting we promised to do. So let's start with Federer and the men's side of Wimbledon. Federer just won in Halle for the 10th time. Uh, he beat David Goffon in the final. Uh, pretty easy match there. He had a little bit of a struggle in some of the earlier rounds. Did did he lose his set to Bautista Agu? I think that was his... Yeah, and no, answered Tsanga. Tsanga was a very close match. Oh yeah, that was a, that was an excellent match. So it, it, it was a little tight, as things can tend to be on speedy grass courts, like in Halle. Uh... The vict- I'm not sure whether he would have been promoted to the Wimbledon number two seat anyway, but the, the Halle title certainly helped in Wimbledon's unique grass-weighted seating formula. So Federer will be number two, knocking Nadal down to number three, which could be an advantage because Kevin Anderson, thanks to his performance last year, he'll be number four. So whoever is number two has a 50-50 shot at getting Kevin Anderson in the semis. Or, or yeah, someone else. Whoever beats Kevin Anderson to get to the semis. Um, 
So Federer, Halla, 10 wins now, it, that would be an enormously impressive number, except we just spent the whole clay season hearing 12s uh, regarding Rafael Nadal in Barcelona and Roland Garros. I'm curious, since Halla kind of... It, 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 Wait, he didn't win Barcelona, right? You're right. So He so won he, Rome. Yeah, he's up to 12 Roland Garroses. He's up to a lot of other tournaments. I... I I just remember they're all really high numbers that will never be equaled. Uh, but I think, th- does he have 12 Barcelona titles? It sounds right. Okay, I think that's right. Uh, we'll pretend like it is. And then if, if we're wrong, I'll expect lots of emails from our devoted and nitpicky listeners. Um, so how would you compare these two feats? So Rafa has a little better winning percentage in Barcelona since I mean, he has more wins. Maybe he hasn't played it quite white as many times. Uh, Federer has the 10 wins in Hala, some close losses there. Maybe the margins on grass are, well, the margins on grass are slimmer with more tie breaks and so on. I mean, how do you compare those two feats? Is, is one clearly better than the other to you? Uh, yes, Rafa's is better. And why? Well, I haven't looked at this in a little while, but when I last did, Federer's Hala draws were not that impressive like he he rarely faced a top 10 player on his way to titles there um so i think and you know for many years it was a 250 uh it was still a very strong 250 as far as 250s go and and often his draws were uh looked easier because of top players losing early but fact remains like he just it wasn't as difficult to win those titles as um, as Rafa's. Do you think that we should make some adjustment for the slightly coin-flippy nature of, of grass courts with more service holds, more tie breaks, smaller margins, and, and thus a higher possibility that a, a weaker player will, will sneak their way to an upset sometimes? Is that how the numbers shake out? Like, does Wimbledon have more... Um, more upsets than other Grand Slams? I'm not sure Wimbledon does. I'm not sure that's where you'd look for this question because the best of five would... Well, I guess if you're comparing to other Slams. I'm not sure. That's a, Yeah, I was just going to go with Slams because so many other things even out between them. Yeah, yeah I'm not sure. Uh, it, I mean, it's looking at, at the hollow results over the years, it certainly seems like that's a factor, but that could be more Fed's game style... Uh, it could be the game style of the players who succeed on grass because the, I mean, the Dustin Browns of the world are playing a lot of tie breaks. Uh, I mean, it certainly feels that way to me. I uh, I was willing to take that as a given, but I'm I'm glad you pushed back and reminded us that's something that we could actually test. Yeah, I'm 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 open either way. I just um, I can think of lots of you know, Wimbledon semifinals that are right what you'd expect. And, um, you know, Sampras consistent, you know, he won Wimbledon more than any other tournament. I think half of his slam titles were there. So, and, and when, and like some of the really surprising results of one time slam winners seems like, seems like they've come on clay where the opposite should be true. Um, in terms of your point about the coin flip nature. So, um, Maybe I went to the slams because I thought it would confirm my suspicion about this and not because I thought it was the best best place to test it. But um, I, my intuition is a little different from yours only because of the results. The actual like point-to-point nature 
of grass court tennis suggests it should be uh, less predictable. Yeah, I should probably go back and rerun a study that I did. Maybe it was last year, maybe two years ago, where I, I tried to estimate the... I, I looked at things like Federer at Halle, Federer at Wimbledon, and Rafael Nadal at his various tournaments that he's dominated, and, and tried to put tried to compare those by figuring out what level a player would have to be at to, to win a tournament that many times. And the problem I was trying to solve was if, if Nadal basically wins all of his matches in Barcelona, then... Like we know he's really good, but we don't know just how good he is. Like he, he, whatever ELO rating we give him for that, it could be higher, and he'd still have very similar results because his results are just they include so few losses. And the same applies a little less so to to Federer and Halla and Wimbledon. And when I did that, like the, the Nadal results were by far the more impressive, uh, both because he has more wins, because Federer has played his special tournaments more times than Rafa has, so like. 10 wins out of, I don't know, 16 or 17 tries is, is far inferior to 12 wins out of 15 tries or whatever the actual number is. Um, I mean, they're both otherworldly, of course, but, but by that measure, then the Nadal feats are, are the clear winners. 11 Barcelona titles, by the way. 11 Barcelona titles. All right, well, I stand corrected. It's no, you were lot. just ahead of your time. He'll get there. Yeah, I'm I'm ahead of my time. Like when I when like when I'm behind my time with an age, I'm never wrong. I just have out of date data on someone's age. Um, so I have a whole list of of various grass court topics we can talk about, but I wanted uh, I want to frame this more around looking ahead to Wimbledon. And I already mentioned the the slight weirdness of Kevin Anderson being seated fourth. And we know why, because Wimbledon makes an adjustment for grass court results and Anderson's the defending finalist, but basically hasn't played since Miami. He lost one match on grass courts, but he's still coming back from injury. Do you, do you think that Anderson has much of a chance at all of like, coming back triumphant and even getting back to like the final eight or the final four at this tournament? Sure, because I think he has a chance to win his first two matches against unseeded opponents, and you know, let's see what the draw is. And if he does, at that point, he's won two best of five matches, and maybe is starting to feel feel pretty good and uh, be closer to to where he was before. So, yeah, I think he has a chance. But I think you know, I I don't know. You already know what the seeds are. I haven't looked, but um. Whoever is probably like five through ten, I would give a better chance than Anderson. I'm glad you said that. So Anderson uh, displaced the the actual number four, who is Dominic Team. So four and five are Anderson and Team. Do you think that Team has a better chance than Anderson of winning Wimbledon? Purely because of uh, form, yeah. Okay, a couple more people I wanted to talk about in the in the nine to sixteen range. One is John Isner, who hasn't played since Miami, where he had a great tournament, but he's been injured since, missed the French Open. As I haven't heard anything about him lately, but as far as I know, he'll be back, and he, he'll be seated ninth. And then Marin Cilic, because of his grass court success, was also bumped into the top 16. So those are two guys who I mean, presumably people won't be looking forward to facing in the fourth round. But 
two very different stories. Isner was having, at least had one good run, then missed some time due to injury. Chilich has been on court almost every week, but he's been slumping pretty hard so far this year. Uh, which of those two guys would you favor going into Wimbledon? Uh, I mean, it's so uncertain what Isner's level will be. He was, he was, he was really hurting when he um, had to leave the sport for a while after Miami. So I guess if he's back, he's he's in decent shape. But and you know his serve, if the injury isn't uh, hurting it too much, should give him a chance in any match. So I guess I'll choose him just because we have so much recent evidence that Chilich is you know, playing at a level somewhere around number 40 or something. I haven't looked at his ELO rating, but that's what it feels like to me, that he just, he, he's, he seemed like um, just as likely to crash out in the first round against a lower-ranked opponent as to win one or two matches in a tournament. Yeah, he, you know, we love Diego Schwartzman and don't want to under uh, underestimate his level, but he's not a good grass court player. And that's who Marin Cilic lost to at Queens club in a pretty routine match. So that might be all the evidence you really need to, to put Cilic's fitness for this tournament in question. Um, Although I, now I, now that I've checked, it, it's exactly the reverse of what I guess. Cilic is still 14th in ELO and Isner is 37th. So based on that, I definitely, definitely should have picked Cilic. That's true. Um, although what you said about Isner was a good caveat to, to support your argument that it, it really just depends on his form because it, it, his, he's been gone off tour long enough that the injury penalty is kicking in. So I think of a lot of the difference between their ELO scores at this point is the inner, in, injury penalty. So if, if Isner makes it to the quarterfinals, the semifinals, then by that point ELO will have quickly readjusted and canceled out a lot of the the injury penalty. So if they are both in the the last eight, let's say, then they'll be a lot closer than that at this point. I'd be surprised if Chilich makes it that far, but at least in theory, that's the situation. So, okay, what I did before we started recording was I, I ran a tournament simulation using the current top 128 players, so the qualifiers and the wild cards aren't exactly right, but I did use the actual Wimbledon seedings, so Anderson at number four, team at number five, and so on, and randomized the the draws. So our best guess at a forecast uh, seven days away from the first day of the tournament. Uh, Who is your favorite, Carl, going in? Djokovic. And is that... Djokovic by mile, Djokovic narrowly over Federer, Djokovic narrowly over Nadal. <laughs> uh, narrowly. Narrowly, okay. Yeah, my, my algorithm says 34% for Djokovic, 27% for Federer, so that's pretty narrow. Um, Nadal close in third with 5.5%, so it's not too optimistic about anybody else. And this is something we were talking about going into Roland Garros. We were talking kind of vaguely about how many players had a 1% chance of winning. And I ended up writing something about the women's draw and how wide open it is these days. And I I think going into the French Open, uh, there were 19 women with a 1% chance or better of uh, chance of winning the tournament, according to my ELO ratings. And 
that wasn't the absolute highest of all time, but it was pretty close. Like that, that's, that's on the outer extreme. And at least for the last few slams, it's been a much smaller number for the men. What, what do you think the number is, or what do you think the number is slash what do you think, how many players do you think we should be giving a 1% chance to? 10. A week ago, dead on. I, I thought we were going to get to this on last week's episode, so I did the did the same calculations then, and it was ten people, and largely because of a couple of good runs, I think maybe it's just because this is a Monte Carlo analysis, so it's not going to turn out exactly the same every time. Uh, we're now up to thirteen. Did uh, is Berrettini one of the ones who was added? He was not added. He was already there because okay. at this time last week he had won in Hertogenbosch. Yeah. Or Stuttgart. He won Stuttgart, not Hertogenbosch. Uh, but yeah, he is, he's actually the, yeah, these, these do not make you super confident in the ELO. So let me tell you who our, who our favorites are. After Djokovic, Federer, and then distant third Nadal. In fourth place is Kei Nishikori. Um, which is kind of Elo throwing up his hands and saying somebody has to be number four. I, I was shocked by that when I first saw it. I looked back at his results, and I think this is sort of an Elo problem slash artifact that a huge percentage of his recent grass losses, recent meaning the last two, three years, have been retirements or withdrawals, and Elo doesn't count those. So in the last couple of years, according to Elo, Nishikori has been undefeated, just not against terribly good opponents. <laughs> Gaming Elo, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so he's he's there in fourth. Chilich is fifth. Uh, so Elo still likes him a lot. Followed by Berrettini, narrowly in, in sixth place. And then after that, we have Bautista Agu. We talked about him last week as sort of a surprising Elo favorite on grass. Then Ronich, Team, Zverev, Medvedev, Auge Aliasim, Sitsipas. Those are your 13. And then narrowly missing the cut by a slim rounding error is Karen and Kashinov. I haven't seen much of Ronich on grass this year, but just looking at the match stats and his results, I I think he's someone Elo could slightly underrate um, just because his losses were like very unlucky in terms of the stats. And um, yeah, he he could blow people off the court. Yeah, I, I would think I would, it's easy to forget about him these days since he hasn't posted a good result in or a really standout result in quite a while. But we know that he's done great on grass in the past. He, he, as far as I know, he's not hurt right now. So I would probably put him ahead of Chilich uh, in that category of you know, of mercurial big servers. That's a, a not the best well-defined category, but. Of those guys, Ronich seems to have as good a chance as, uh, as any. I mean, certainly he can have a great day on grass against anyone. What do you th- and two other names that strike me. One, we talked about Feliciano Lopez winning Queens with Murray in doubles. He won it in singles and is always great on grass. And another oldster with great grass results, Tsonga, uh, who played Federer pretty much to a standstill statistically, uh, and that alone should be enough. But, I mean, he's he's looked quite good so far in the grass season, too. So I, I, neither of them will be seeded, and they could both be very dangerous. Yeah, Song is a great point. Lopez played well. The draw did open up for him quite a bit. I think he, um, winning a final against Simone isn't 
quite the same level of achievement as some other grass court finalists. But but yeah, and, and he's in there too. He's only a couple places outside of that top 13. I think he's looks like he's 16th on the list. So Elo is reacting to that as well. Song is quite a bit further down around number 25. But they're, they're in the mix. What do you think about Felix? Uh, he's made a final and a semifinal on grass so far. Uh, I mean, pretty much untested. I'm not sure if he if he played the adult events in the past, but I know he, he had some success in uh, junior Wimbledon, I think. But I mean, clearly he's shown himself able to compete with anybody he's faced. I mean, he hasn't really been tested against the very top players too much. But having an easy time against Tsitsipas lately, two wins this year against Stefano Tsitsipas. So do you think that, that we're right to put Auger Aliassime in the conversation with these other guys? Absolutely. I mean, his body of work this year on all surfaces, which I know factors into your forecasts on every surface, it's just been really impressive. Um, gotten to see some of him on grass, and he looks really comfortable. I mean, your success on any surface is, is so driven by the same things, namely serve and return, but when when he has had to come up with something different, which grass seems to make you do often, uh he seems like comfortable hitting just about every kind of shot. So yeah, I'm very, um, very bullish on him. Not bullish like he'll win Wimbledon, but bullish like he belongs in the group of the top 10 or so contenders. Yeah. I, I was ready to say that even before he, he started creeping up this list. And like, I, I, when he first started having success on clay this year, I was a little skeptical, both because the draws there were so easy. And because I just, I, 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 I tend to want to wait and see. We've been, we get so excited about young players sometimes that we often get too excited too fast. But he's really done it all. I mean, he's he looks great on every surface. He's played some very good players to even the ones who are beating him. He's often losing very narrow matches. He looked outstanding in his match against Dustin Brown, not this past week, but the week before. Uh, really challenging opponent on his best surface and. Auger Aliassim was just so calm, so steady, did whatever he needed to do to, to keep Dustin Brown off balance. Just really impressive performance. So yeah, I'm also not ready to anoint him our, our next Wimbledon champion, but wouldn't be surprised to see him make a deep run here. So only have about 10 minutes left, which is not nearly enough time to talk about our, a women's, women's Wimbledon forecast, but we do need to start with Ashley Barty. So Ashley Barty, our French Open champion, now is the Birmingham champion as well. So she gets the number one spot in the rankings. First Australian to be number one since Yvonne Goulagong Kali in 1976. Uh, pretty impressive stuff for her back-to-back tournament wins at Roland Garros and then on grass. And I think last time we talked about this, Carl, you pointed out that Barty has had some less than stellar results at Wimbledon in the past, but... Coming off a Birmingham title, are are you ready to make her more of a favorite at the next slam? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it, it's the most recent result. It's a great result. And her overall record this year is so strong. So, yes, yeah, I think she's an easy favorite. I, it, was, it was more like noting an oddity. And, and we've talked about this before, like what to make of uh, different outcomes for women on at the slam of a certain surface versus like on that surface overall because you'd expect given that all the matches are best of three that there's more similarity than 
indifference. Um, so it, it probably is just a fluke. And that's not to say she's definitely going to go far at Wimbledon, but she seems like the most likely player to win it. Yeah, and my forecast agrees. So for reference, Djokovic, I think I said he had a 34% chance of winning, according to my forecast. Um, Can I guess? For Barty? Yeah. Yeah, go for it. Well, I'm not going to guess for Djokovic. Um, <laughs> 24%? Pretty good, 21 uh, And I, I mentioned before, a week ago, there were 10 men with a 1% chance of winning. Now Elo thinks there are 13 what do you think the number is for the women? 19. 19 is exactly right. Very impressive. Uh, I was more excited to talk about this last week because before Barty opened up a bigger gap and claimed more of the points for herself, there were 22 women with a 1% chance of winning, which I, th- I think is as high as the French Open's ever been. I haven't looked at past years of Wimbledon, but would have been a, a remarkably wide open field. But now we've got Barty at 21%. Kerber is second at 11. Simona with nine. Kvitova with six and a half. Pliskova, Kanta, Bertens, Bencic, Magrutsa. Kennan rounding out the top 10. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, Carl. We've talked about Kennan occasionally, and Majorca was kind of off my radar this week because there was so much good tennis going on in Birmingham. But Kennan ended up winning that title with a really close final against Belinda Bencic, had to save a couple match points in the second set. Uh, I mean, since I've been watching Sophia Kennan, I'm impressed with her play. She's really resourceful, has a lot of good shots, good mover. But she seems like a sort of fringy top 20 player, maybe like a Sevastova type player at best. But... I mean, she's she's still quite young. Another title under her belt, climbing up both the official rankings and the ELO ratings. Do you think that Kennan is a legit like top ten type contender? Yeah, just just based on results, ranking, and age, I think she has to be. I, I see your point, though. Um, I mean, are you are you kind of saying like what are the weapons? Yeah, I mean, and that's that's kind of always the question. Like, we don't have an official forecasting method that takes those variables of of age, ranking, results, and and spits out a career peak rank. Uh, maybe I should build that so we have something to to base things these things off. But yeah, that's what we're always kind of wondering. It's like, okay, if we've got this, she twenty one. I want to say if she, if we've got a twenty one year old who's ranked twenty eight in the world, then if we know nothing else about her, her peak rank will be eight let's say so is there something about Kennan's game like I, I think yeah for me it's that she's more of a defensive player good mover but not any big weapons so I would maybe back away from that a little bit and say my predicted peak ranking is 12 but do you think there's reasons for more optimism there yeah first of all she just lost some months of age she's she's actually 20.6 as tennis abstract puts it decimally uh, so right there, that that should help her forecast. You know, the other thing is, I feel like this is a conversation we've had before, and we, we can't really resolve it just by talking about it. But there are so many recent examples of players who you could criticize by saying don't have big weapons, who have won slams, reached number one, or at least like made the top five and stayed there for a bit. So uh, I don't think by itself that's disqualifying. No, it isn't. But I, I, and as always, we're talking about kind of weighted projections here. So, I mean, if, when you say somebody's 
projected to be to have a peak ranking of eight. I mean, it's not as scientific as we're making it sound because I just pulled that number out of the air. But when you say that, you're not saying there's no chance they're a top five player. You're not even saying there's no chance they're a top one player. But like there are there are more. I think this is fair to say there are more players kicking around the top 100 or even the top 50 who don't have big weapons than those who who do. Um, and as we've seen by Osaka racing to the top of the rankings, as we will see when Sabalenka wins the next 24 slams, uh, the, the having the weapons helps. Like it, it does grease the skids up to the top. So I think it, it's tougher for someone like Kennan to, to climb the ranks, even if we have uh, a fair number of examples of other players who've done it. I, I and maybe three other listeners of this podcast would enjoy a a futuristic tennis abstract blog post where you write about what we now know in the world in which Sabalenka has won the last 24 slam titles. Like what has changed about tennis analytics because this happened? Well, nothing. It's what I predicted <laughs> 24 slams ago. So all that happens is you were vindicated. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I write that futuristic blog post, that's definitely what it will say. Okay. I'll read it. Great. So I finally have a new blog post idea but no I do think it would be maybe I've mentioned this on the, on the podcast before but it would be really valuable to have just a, a bare bones forecasting method of saying we know a player's age their current rank maybe maybe a couple other variables like their peak rank up to this point or if they've won tournaments or something like that and spit out a, a, a projection for peak rank number of expected slams won or something like that uh, because I, I think we're kind of assuming we know or we're, we're picking those numbers out of the air and we generally agree on what they look like. But I think we maybe could have more intelligent conversations if we let the computer do that and then we, we tried to do what the computer couldn't do uh, with, the, with the variables that didn't make it into that equation. Like a coach aiding, uh, being aided by an AI tool on serve direction. Exactly. Yep, it all comes full, first full circle. I don't know where I, why I was going to say first circle, but uh, yeah. So okay, that's having come full circle. That's probably a good place to end things for this week. So Carl, as always, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Jeff. Everyone enjoy Wimbledon qualies this week and the rather poor excuses for ATP draws that are happening. Great tournament in Eastbourne for women, but not a lot of top men in in action. We didn't get a chance to talk about the the weird disconnect between the ATP events and the great players who are playing the, the Wimbledon warm-up exhibitions, as is normally the case. Uh, maybe we'll touch on that next week, but there will be a slam underway by the next time we record. So let's all look forward to that. Thank you, everyone, everyone for listening, and we will see you about this time next week.